You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. These families that you're seeing getting ready to move up to the stage, I just want to tell you right off the bat, these are some heroes of mine that I've got to meet and getting to know. Some of them I met, some of them I'm still getting to know, but these are some heroes in our county, and I want you to know about them, and I want you to hear their story. Um, Throughout our county, we have a lot of people who give of themselves, and I mean give sacrificially, and make a huge impact. And and quite frankly, uh, most of them, most of those folks, police officers, fire department, all those folks, and these families that I have this morning, the thing about them that makes them so special and so heroic in my mind is that they're not looking for a pat on the back. As a matter of fact, it's hard for them to get up here and do what they're doing this morning to share their story. But that's what makes them heroes, is that they give of themselves, they make a huge impact, and they're not looking for anyone to come alongside them and pat them on the back and give them that, uh, well, that acknowledgement. So I want to just introduce these folks first of all. Over here to the far side is Ms. Dawn Gavashi. She is the project director, uh, uh, manager for DSS. Give her a round of applause this morning. And you, you have heard from Dawn before. Uh, Dawn and I have worked together on a lot of different things, specifically the hurricanes, and she really loves being in front of people and speaking in public. That's one of her things that she loves. I'm in trouble for that one. All right, so Miss Dominique Brooks, give Dominique Brooks a round of applause this morning. And Miss Denise Hunt, give Miss Denise Hunt a round of applause. And then Miss Patrice Oxendine, absolutely. So to get started, I want them to just share a little bit about their story, about what God's doing in their life right now through foster care and adoption. Let's start there. All right. Um, I have a two-year-old little boy. He came into care um, straight from the hospital. He spent a year with um, some family, and he was placed in my home last December. So we're getting close to a year. Um, We've been to court, and we've been to meetings, and we've been to visits, and um, this past September, the judge has allowed us to move into adoption. So this is a new process, but we're excited. Well, on April, no, February the 16th, 2017, I entered my home with three brothers, and March 29th this year, the decree for adoption was final. Parents kept slipping through the cracks, and I had prayed, and I couldn't see those kids going out and the structure that I had brought them under and the love that they were shown. They were ready, to, which two of them were with me today, and they had to do the consent. And one of them said, Miss Hunt, why wouldn't I stay here? You're the best cook ever. I said, so you want to live with me to eat? <laughs> but I love it. I love adoption, and, and I'm at full capacity. When the decree came, I told the social worker, I said, close my house down. I'm going to raise these. I will retire. And one little boy was there. When she left, he ran crying out of home. Miss Hunt, please don't let me go. I want to live here with the guy, you and the guys. Please don't take me. Let me go live with my brother because he had a brother. So that night I couldn't sleep, couldn't rest. Had to get his brother. And he's been with us since June 1st. And it's working out fine. God never makes a mistake. Amen. Amen. And... Uh, We have been fostering for eight years. 
Uh, we currently have adopted four children from foster care. Over the eight years, we've had 27 um, children come through our home, um, and it just so happened we adopted our daughter. Um, we've had her since she was 13 months old. We took a baby at three months old, found out he had a brother. We brought him in. Mom had another baby, and so we brought Jack home from five days old in the hospital. And we just uh, stopped fostering, so we're hoping to pass that torch on to somebody else. I bark. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Miss, Miss Judy was with us at early service, and uh, she had to leave. But Dawn, share a little bit about how many... Because I, I just blew my mind when she, she said that this morning about how many kids that she's fostered. Miss Judy's been with us 22 years. She's, I think it was a foster, a foster parent, and she's had over 60 children um, pass through her home over those years. Give them a round. So I want to ask a question, and just whoever wants to answer it, just jump in. What, what made you decide to become a foster parent or to adopt? Um... We read the book Radical a long time ago as a church, and I just remember that kind of stuck out to me, but I didn't really, wasn't ready for it then. I remember um, they talked about either their town or um, their county, that the whole church had just been inspired and gotten um, excited about it, and they all, you know, pitched in where they could, and that kind of left a little bit of an impression on me, and then I was reminded, going back through the whole process, about that. Um, but I work in the school system, and... A little boy came in kindergarten, and he had been in five different placements by the springtime. And I'm just, what does that mean? You know, he had to pack up. He had to leave these people and go to these other people. And for whatever various reasons, um, five times. And then in his little life of five years old, it had been eight to ten times. And so that just hurt my heart. And I said, what can I do? You know, and so... Um, Amber, she's uh, the coordinator for getting everything together. She was a parent at my school, and I said, what can I do? You know, I, I, I got an extra bedroom. You know, I've got, you know, a bed. I've got a car. I've got energy and, you know, love. And, you know, what can I do to help? And she said, well, let's talk about it. I'll hold your hand every step of the way, and she has. And so just, you know, being open to it. And it was kind of like a little seed that was planted. It wasn't like, okay, oh, you need foster parents? Sure, sign me up. So just, you know, time and time again, the Lord just kept putting people in my life or hearing other stories and um, just being inspired by, you know, I have time, I have love, I have um, these resources that, you know, need to be spent somewhere. So um, just... <laughs> Well, there was one incident. I was on ball game duty one afternoon, and I got a call. Miss Denise, this is Child Protective Services. Would you be willing to? I said, oh, my God, what has my kid did? But it wasn't my kid. It was my neighbors. And they, the kids were there, and they had referred me to take care of them. So they brought, me, brought them to my home, and I done the structure with them and loved them. And when they was taken away, Miss Lewis said, Miss Hunt, I told you we needed foster parents. So I did the MAP classes, and it led to fostering. And I tell you, it has been a real blessing. You, you, I'm telling you, you ain't going to go wrong. God has a plan. There's no mistake in what he can do. I'm telling you, it's a wonderful experience. And like I said, those three brothers, I adopted them. Then I wanted to close my home, and I couldn't because that one child still needed to be loved. God is love, Hyde Park. We need foster parents.
we, um, my husband and I have always known that we wanted to be parents, and so we went down the road of infertility, and, you know, there's lots of ways that you can have a baby now, and so we had to explore those, and we were going on, and I can remember when it was like, God just stopped me in my tracks and said, there's plenty of kids that need to be loved. And I, my mama looked at me like I was crazy. She, we're, all, we're this close to having twins or having triplets. And, but there was something that God was calling us to do, and it, and it didn't involve you know, us seeking out these things for ourselves. It was that he was laying out our path. And once we decided to kind of let him guide us and let him have his way, um, you know, we've been able to be parents to way more children than we could have ever um, had on our own. And to give them something that is lasting, you know, I mentioned in the first service that, you know, we exposed them to lots of things and we loved them. But I was sitting there thinking, Pastor, and those children won't remember me, but in my hallway, I have all their little faces on my hallway. And when I pass by there, I say, I don't know where they are. I don't know where they are or what they're going through right this minute. God, you bless them and you touch them and you take care of them. And, and that has given me Amen. As an adoptive dad myself to three, um, adoption, foster care is not easy. And the last thing we want to do is paint it in a way that uh, maybe is not based in reality. And I believe, I firmly believe that there are families in this church that are being called to this very ministry, this very task. But I also want people to understand that it's not always easy, that there are some hardships. Can you talk a little bit about some of your toughest experiences, some of your struggles with fostering and adopting? Well, some of my experiences in which it's not struggles, it's structure. You got to do a lot for these kids. Like if they were your own. I was a parent of six kids, six kids, 14 grandkids now. But I tell you, it's like a second shift job to me. I work with public schools in Robinson County. Miss Judy Lewis has left us, but she's the one really recruited me through it all. Seeing kids come through the system, battled and bruised every day, needing to be loved. It's a wonder if I hadn't had an orphan or build a something. But the structure, ironing, cooking, and all games, church, choir practice, just keeping them on a schedule is really what is really tough, but it's worked out. It's been a blessing. So in the first service that we, we are trying our best to recruit. My sister is now fostering, even my mom is now fostering. Um, but the first thing that people always say to me is, I just don't know how you let them go. I could never do that. And I want you to know right now, we do not have superhero capes. There's nothing that makes me any different from you. When we have to let children go that we have cared for and prayed for and loved and watched, it hurts. But what I keep reminding myself is it, it was worth it. It was worth it to me and it was worth it to that child and that we can do things and be that person that they may never experience again. They may never have those same experiences. They may never even experience that level of peace um, once they leave your home. And, and I can, it's worth it. So. I would say a lot of these kids come from, um, you know, they're either neglected severely 
um, or you know they lack um, experiences. Um, there's a little girl um, at my school currently who's in third grade, and her biggest thing that she wants she wants to learn how to read. Right now she's on a kindergarten reading level. It's, it's, it's okay. Um, so these are just normal children, just like your children that you have or you know that you see every day, and so. They just want a, a good future, and you know they deserve that time for someone to sit and read with them. And you know, <laughs> one funny thing is, um, so they come to your house just to make sure everything is good. And the lady was like, "Oh, great! You have a dining room table." And I'm like, "Yeah." She's like, "Oh, wow! You have a, a nice backyard." I'm like, "Okay." You know, I was like, "I just have to ask. Why are you asking me if I have a dining room table?" She's like, "Well, a lot of these kids, you know." it would be great if you guys could sit around the table and eat meals together and talk about their day. And I'm like, yeah. So it just never even stuck out in my mind that, you know, a lot of these kids are just given food or, you know, they're um, food starved. They're not getting enough. They might only get what they get at school or at their daycare or different places. And so that kind of stuck out to me like, okay, you know, that's an easy thing. You know, we can have dinner at the table. We can talk, you know, and I grew up... <laughs> knowing that, you know, I, I may have took that for granted. And so a lot of these kids just spending time with them, sharing with them, reading with them, making sure that they're getting their basic needs and more met. Dom, you, you raised, Dominique, I call her Dom. Uh, Dominique, you raised something that just took me back in time. I can remember when my wife and I were going through our first adoption process with Hannah and uh, the home study. Uh, I, that's the cleanest our house has ever been. Because uh, you, you've got someone coming in to kind of review your house. And as you're describing, I'm like, it took me back to 2001. And, and my wife and I were thinking that we've got to have everything perfect. You know, you got to have everything just in place. And I remember the, the lady who did our home study said, no, it just needs to be a safe home. And when you said a table and chairs and a bed, folks, that should bring it all home to what these kids are missing in their life. Not only the love and the structure but the basics of life, of being able to read and be able to be in an environment where they can thrive. Tell me just a little bit about, well, some of the rewarding experiences that you've had. Some of the, you look back across it now, and I've heard all of you say, either first service and even now, that if you had to go back and do it again, you'd do it a hundred times more, right? Well, well, tell us about the rewards and experiences and the blessings of, of this experience. I think one thing that sticks out in my mind, and um, I had a little boy, and I probably... He probably stayed with me for about three months, and he was about five years old. Um, but I, we used to call his mom. You know, he was very attached to her. And I can remember that day that I got the call that, like, hey, we just had court. He's going, he's going back. And I thought, oh, gosh, how do I prepare this little five-year-old? Like, leaving me, here we go again. And as I drove up and I started to put the things into her car, I looked at her, and she had just the biggest tears, like, falling. And I thought, oh, my gosh, she's so happy to get him back. And she just grabbed me and she hooked my neck and she said, I hate to take him from you. I thought, wow, what does that speak about what she has seen in me? That she's not crying because she's getting him back. But she knows that I did my best to give him everything I could while he was there. And we don't always get that, you know, pat on the back from parents. You know, most of the time they want to get their kid back and forget you ever existed. But just to know that you made a difference that one time, and that mama really, she really appreciated that, and that was. Well, one of my rewarding experiences was 
when the adoption came final and I could finally post my boys. People say, why don't you never post? You can't do that. It's confidentiality. The parent posted on my wall, Miss Hunt, I love you. And when I messed up, you stepped up. But when I got my boys, they called me from DSA. Miss Hunt, what you doing? We got an autistic boy. I know you work with self-contained kids. Will you try him? I said, I will give it a try. I tell y'all, by nine o'clock that night, I knew what I had. It was yes, ma'am, no, ma'am, can I please? Do you mind? I'm telling you, it's very rare this day and hour where you get that kind of manners. And coming into my home, and that was February the 16th, 2017, and today they're still there, and I couldn't see them going back out. When they asked me to adopt, I said, sure. My boys ain't going nowhere. Because when God gave me them, he took my first love three months later. And what do we have? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I tell you, three is always a lucky number for me. <laughs> um, just seeing him hit these milestones, um, he was born and he was only two pounds. He left the hospital on oxygen and, you know, um, had a lung issue and a heart issue. And, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, they already had a future pr predicted for him, doctors and, and nurses and different people. And um, so now when we go back to those checkups and, um, you know, he wasn't passing his hearing screening and now we've gotten tubes in our ears we can hear, we've gotten glasses, we, um, you know, our height and our weight, everything's looking good. So, you know, when everybody says, wow, you know, this is so great, he's doing so well, you know, keep up what you're doing. And I'm like, okay, we're just, you know, playing and eating and <laughs> reading books. And like, okay, you know. Um, so that, that's exciting um, and rewarding, but I do need to brag on one person um, from this congregation. If you know me, my favorite store to go to is the Aldi. And I go every Wednesday because that's when they put out their new items. And I was in the store post-pandemic, and, um, you know, it was a little awkward when people see you with, like, no kids, and then they see you with this toddler, and they're like, oh, who's this? <laughs> And so uh, I even had to look Google one day, like, how do I introduce people to, to this new kid? And I didn't want to say, well, this is my foster kid, you know, with that label as, uh, you know, a short-term type thing. But I also couldn't say, this is my son, you know. I was like, oh, well, you know, this is baby C. And they're like, oh, okay. Gosh, please don't ask me any more questions because I don't have any answers to give you. I don't know how long he's going to be here or, you know, all these different things of his past. I said, but I do know, you know, every day we're, you know, growing and getting better and stronger, and um, so she, I think she could kind of catch what I was throwing out there, and she said, oh, okay, th that's so great. My brother and his wife have um, fostered and adopted kids, and I was like, oh, okay, yeah, like I didn't have to say it, but she knew where I was coming from, and one thing that just touched me, she said, if he needs to get some energy out, you just park in front of my house, and we've got a playground, and anytime, anytime you need to, so I just thought, gosh, you know, doesn't know me any more than just seeing me at church, and she knows I'm out on a limb with this new adventure, and for her to say, hey, we've got this playground, come and play, I thought that was um, just really exciting and, and comforting for me. Ms. Dahl, I've got a question for you. Um, what do you think are some things that this church could do to support you and other foster parents in this county? Okay. Well, right now we have 362 children in foster care in Robinson County. And I will, I didn't say it in the first service, but I will say through the pandemic, um, we really, 
saw a tremendous, we increased by 100 children. We were, um, at the height of pandemic, we were at 425 children in care. Okay, so I want to make sure we get this and hear what she just said, because you didn't get to share that at first service, and I'm hearing it for the first time. So you're, you're saying that from the beginning of the pandemic till now, you've increased the number of children needing foster care by how many? By 100. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, many, um, through the pandemic, during lockdown, we saw a lot of our parents who had been working on their plan lose their life um, through drug over drug overdoses, and um, we had at least three children that both parents um, overdosed. And so um, there's a great need right now. We only have 42 licensed foster homes in our county. Um, I would say, you know, we have a tremendous need. If you say 42, the most they can have in each home is five children. Um, many of our foster parents, like Miss Denise, like Miss Patrice, you know, they are at their capacity, and so although they're, they're still fostering with us, we can't just see more children. So there is a great need, you know, foster and adopt may not be for you. There's other ways that you can support these families, and whether it is um, getting connected with us at DSS, background checks, and you could be a support person for them. Like you like to go out on date nights, they like to have date nights or go out with their friends, and you could be that person that they call and say, hey, could you babysit? Um, maybe it is supporting um, some of the children that are placed in their home. Our foster children um, like to do the same thing that your children do. Music lessons, um, playing sports, and with all of those things, you know, that can get expensive. And so offering support to these families. Maybe, like Jeff said in the first service, instead of adopting a child, you could adopt a foster family. You may not be aware of this, but we uh, started a partnership before the pandemic where this church, we do a Christmas party. We've done a Christmas party and an Easter party for the foster families to be able to come, and we just want to love them and bless them, and, and we usually have that in the gym. We've got one coming up in December. We're still working all the details out on that, but uh, I want to say thank you to you guys. It's, it's a heroic thing to not only do what you're doing, but it's a heroic thing to get in front of a group of people that you don't know and talk about it. So I'm very thankful for you being here today. Give them a round of applause. Matter of fact, I think we need to stand up and give them a standing round of ovation. Thank you. And I know that some of them, you can be seated. I know that uh, some of them need to go. They had to endure uh, my sermon at first service. Nobody should have to endure that twice. So they may, uh, they may go ahead and roll out, and that is completely fine. If you will, turn to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Now, while we, uh, we've talked about the opportunities for you to be a blessing uh, to this community and to those children, there's another topic that we need to talk about this morning in, in relation to loving life because I'm very concerned about where our culture is going. I'm very concerned about this culture of death that is really beginning to take hold in our culture. And 130, Psalm 139, where we're going to be this morning, not only speaks to that, but it also speaks to the power and the presence of God in every one of our lives. Fast forward to early 2012, January, February 2012. 
Journal of Medical Ethics, world-renowned, well-known Journal of Medical Ethics. Two professors, two doctors, write an article in that 2012 Journal of Ethics. Those two professors were Alberto Giobellini, University of Milan, and a professor, Francesca Minerva, University of Melbourne and Oxford University. Well-known, well-respected. You can look this up. This is not something I'm pulling out of thin air here. They make the argument in that a article about ethics, right and wrong. These two professors write an article, and basically their argument is, is that newborn babies lack the ability to participate or anticipate the future. Therefore, they are not human. Let's go back to the birthing room. The baby's been born. These two professors are making an argument now that abortion should be extended into that moment. That that child, that person, that baby is not actually a person. Listen to what they say. They, they also said that they prefer afterbirth abortion to the term infanticide. Quote, the moral status of an infant is the equivalent of that of a fetus, or in my terms, a preborn baby. That is, neither can be considered a person in any morally relevant case, end quote. What are they arguing? They're arguing that that baby that is born, that person that is in that room, is not actually a person and doesn't deserve the rights of life, liberty, and freedom. But they go on to say, listen to this, this should make a cold chill go down your spine. Listen to what they say. This is their argument. Quote, abortion is at an early stage of the best option for both psychological and physical reasons. However, if a disease has not been detected during the pregnancy, if something went wrong during the delivery, or if economical, social, or psychological circumstances change such that taking care of the offspring, here it is, becomes an unbearable burden on someone, then people should be given the chance of not being forced to do something they cannot afford. Do you get that argument? Here's the slippery slope. In the Roe v. Wade case, we're arguing what is a person. And in that very case, the lawyer says that it is true. If, it's, if this is not a person, then after the birth, after the delivery, a decision could still be made about whether that child should be allowed to live or not. In 2012, these two doctors are making the argument that if the, the mother's inconvenienced, if there's something going on with the offspring or the child, if there's something going on there, even if, the, even if the mother is uncomfortable about the idea of raising a child, that in that moment her and her doctor could talk and they could decide to end the life of that child that has been born in that very delivery room in that moment. Listen, folks, our position on things have implications. What we believe about the world, what we believe about personhood, what we believe about a child, a baby, an infant, has impact. Let's move forward into January. Governor of the Commonwealth of Virginia, Governor Ralph Northam, was being interviewed about some new abortion rights law that was being brought through their House and Senate to be considered as law. And the idea was is that this law was going to extend the availability of abortions all the way up into the third trimester, even at the point where the child is getting ready to be born, that it could be aborted at that moment. Northam is asked what he feels about that, how he thinks about that, and this is what he said. He says the infant would be delivered 
The infant would be delivered. The infant would be kept comfortable. The infant would be resuscitated if that's what the mother and the family desired. Then a discussion would ensue between the physician and the mother. Do you know what that discussion entails? Whether or not this child should live. Just a few weeks ago, just a few months ago, we had a man that was here speaking on this stage by the name of Daniel. You remember his story? He had no arms. He was born with no arms. And he told us right here on this stage, he looked at us and said that there was a moment that his dad told him about that his dad was in the birthing room and when Daniel came out, when he was born, it was obvious that this child was different. No arms. And in that moment, as he's crying, as this child that spoke on this stage is 30-some years old now, as he's, he told us that in that moment, the doctor looked at the, at the dad in the birthing room and asked the dad a simple question, do you want to keep him? You know what that question was? It wasn't concerning foster care or adoption. It was about whether that young man was going to be allowed to live. And the dad looked astonished at the doctor and said, absolutely, this is my son. Folks, here's, here's where I'm going with this. I need us to understand, I need you to understand that we as a church, me as your pastor and our leadership, we're not mad at you, we're not angry with you, we're not out there holding signs and yelling at people. What we want you to understand is, is that we believe without any shadow of a doubt that life begins at conception and any other approach takes us down a very evil path. Psalm 139. Psalm 139. I want us to look at this psalm, and, and before we do, I want to give you a definition that's going to help us understand this psalm. This definition of abortion is, this is how I think of abortion. This is maybe my working definition of it. Listen to this. Abortion is the purposeful and intentional ending of a human life that God created and planned for. That's, that's how I view this particular topic. I don't view it from the lens of politics. I don't view it from the lens of the Supreme Court. I view it from the lens of Scripture, the truth, the authority that, that God has given us. So let's pick it up in verse 1. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, oh, Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. This first section of this psalm, the reason I want to walk through this whole psalm is oftentimes we'll focus on verses 13 and following, but the entire psalm is talking about the beauty of human life and the beauty that God is intimately involved in that human life. The psalmist David tells us here that that you and I are completely known by God. So much so that before you even form the words in your mouth to say to someone else, before you can even conceive of the words you're getting ready to say, God already knows what you're going to say. That's incredible, isn't it? That, that this God that we serve, this God who created the universe, it says here that he has searched us and known us, that he knows us when we sit down and when we rise up. In other words, when we go through our normal days of life, when we, when we go to the break room to eat lunch, when we we sit home to watch some entertainment. God knows exactly the thoughts and ideas and words before we even form them. He knows what we're going to be involved with. He knows how your life's going to turn out. Get this. He knows the end of your life. He knows the day that you're going to leave this world. That's appointed unto man once to die. And then after this, 
You're going to have to stand before God and give an account. You are known completely. Our thoughts, our actions, our ways. God is involved in our life. Listen to this. He says, you searched out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. I am convinced that when we cross over into this presence of God, as a believer and follower of Jesus, when I cross over into that final kingdom and I get to walk and talk with Jesus, my mind is going to be blown by how much detail he knew about every day of my life. We're going to have all eternity to walk around through heaven, and then eventually when heaven comes down on earth, we're going to have all eternity to talk about my day in and day out life here. And Jesus goes, oh yeah, I know about that. Let me, let me tell you what was going on there. That's how well God knows your life. Listen to this. He says, you hem me in and behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. And then the psalmist says, this is just too much. I, I can't handle it. And, and in layman's terms, this is what David says here. He says, this is too big for me. I can't comprehend this. I can't wrap my arms around it. The idea that, that God is that involved in my life. If you've been coming any time at all here, you know that I make this statement often because I have to remind myself of it, that God is, in, is at work in your life some 10,000 ways every day, and you may be aware of only one, if that. Isn't that a powerful thought? It's too big for my mind to comprehend. Then look at verse 7. Not only does the Lord know us, but the Lord's not off running the universe somewhere, hoping that it all works out. Look at this. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, or the land of the dead, as the Jewish people understood it, you are there. If I take my wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall not hold me, or your right hand shall hold me. The psalmist says that no matter where you find yourself, in the darkness. Think about, he talks about in the uttermost parts of the sea. Imagine being out on a, on, a, on a boat. Your ship is sunk and you're out on some little dinghy boat in the middle of the ocean. Have there ever been a time in your life where you would be more alone? You look around, you can't see land. All you see is water as far as the eye can see. David puts himself there and says, even in that place, in that boat, in the middle of an ocean, in the middle of the darkness, God is there and he's at work. Some of you are in a dark place, aren't you? I mean, we've all been in some darkness here the last 18 months with COVID-19. You've lost loved ones. I've lost friends. And I would dare say that somewhere in this journey of COVID-19, you begin to question, is God real? Is he here? Is he involved in my life? And David says with a resounding yes. It's never been so dark that God couldn't find you. You've never been so far away that God wasn't there. You've never been so far disconnected because of the sins and the things that you've chosen to do in your life where God has wiped his hands of you and said, I'm done with you. Not a single moment. And even so, in verse 13, not only are we known completely by God and that God is with us, but get this, the Lord put you together. The Lord put you together who you are, the personality you've got, the fingerprints on your fingers, your DNA. Whether you're short or tall, whether you're blonde or brunette, God put that together. That's how involved he is in your life. At the moment of conception, God was there. Listen to what, listen what David says. David says, for you formed me, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, 
It says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me. Get this, not only did God knit you together, but he planned your days. I've said this before too, it's worth saying again, that, that the moment in your life when you were the closest with your creator was right there in that moment of conception. And you know what? We spend the rest of our life trying to find him and run back to him and get back to that right relationship. We, we call it everything under the world. We pursue addictions. We pursue everything under the sun. But the fact of the matter is what you're trying to gain, what you're looking for, the deepest need of your heart is to be right with your creator. And in that moment of creation, when, when God was knitting you together, you've never been closer to your creator than you were in that moment. And not only that, when you were born, your days were marked out. The purpose by which you were given life. Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2. He says that, that we are God's workmanship. And, and if we look at the Greek behind that, it means you are his masterpiece. Get this. You're a masterpiece. You may not feel like it. And you may look in the mirror sometimes and go, well, I'm, 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 too, I'm too fat or I'm too skinny or I'm too blonde or I'm too old or I'm this or I'm that. You look in the mirror and you see yourself and you define yourself by what the world says, but God says, no, 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 no. You have incredible value. So much so that I was involved in the moment you came, you were formed. And I've been involved in every moment of your life since. And you have a purpose and a meaning and a mission You see, folks, this, this is why, this is why as your pastor and as this church, this is why we have decided that, that we've got to stay with the idea of personhood at conception because in that moment, God was involved. And in that God mama moment, God was marking out your days. And in that moment, God brought you together. And in that moment, he made a unique you. And that unique you has a unique purpose. And we can't decide that personhood comes after birth or at age five. It comes at that moment because God made you in that moment for a purpose. And you see abortion, what it does is it puts an end to what God has made. And all those days that were planned comes to an abrupt end in that single moment. I've got a great brother here this morning, and I want you to hear his story, and I want to give, you, give him plenty of time to share it. I don't want you to be in a hurry this morning. So while I close my part out, let me give you just a couple things to consider. Number one, all life is valuable. There are no throwaways. Right now at Southeastern, there are babies being born right now. Not a single one of them is a throwaway. Every one of them is valuable. Every one of them is important. Every one of them is beautiful. Every one of them, regardless if, if they have some kind of challenge that they're born with, they are valuable. And this church, this church needs to love them right where they are. They need to love the mom right where she is. And listen, if every family in every evangelical church, we have 4,000 North Carolina Baptist churches in North Carolina. We have 4,000. If just a few families from each of those churches would step forward and say, you know what, I'm going to adopt, I'm going to foster, or I'm going to support a foster family. Could you imagine what would happen? Could you imagine that if a few families out of each of those churches would step forward and say, you know what, I am going to get involved in the life of a child. I don't care what it's going to cost. I don't care the sacrifice, but I'm going to do it. 
Wouldn't it be amazing that Dawn would have a a waiting list of foster families and no kids to place? Listen, well, not only do we love the child in the womb, but we got to love the child after it's born and when it goes into foster care and when that family needs, when that child needs an adoption, a family, a forever family. And I believe God is calling people in this church to do exactly that. I mean, let's just be clear about it. There are people in this church right now like Dominique. You're single. And God's calling you to adopt or to foster. And then finally, before I hand it over to to Mike, for those of you who've had an abortion, I want you to know that I love you. And I know having to sit through a service like this is hard. I, I I got that. But I want you to know that I love you dearly. This church loves you. And I want you to walk out of the darkness in the light. I want you to take some steps today to finally walk out of that dark place. Maybe there's some guys here that convinced a girlfriend to, to take that route. We want you to come out of the darkness. And you're going to be loved. And you're going to be helped. And there are people in this church right now, right now, that are ready to help walk that journey with you. Father in heaven, I'm grateful for this congregation, and I'm grateful for what they stand upon, and I'm grateful to be their pastor. Now as Mike comes to share, use him powerfully this morning. We love you, and we thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to give a high part welcome to Mike Gersmeyer, a great friend of mine. Give him a round of applause. Good morning. Thank you, uh, Pastor, again for the opportunity to share with you and uh, your congregation. And um, y'all have a great pastor and um, a man that I admire. And um, just want to share real quick, uh, you might be wondering, why is a guy coming up to talk about abortion? You know, isn't that like a women's issue? Isn't that, you know, I, I don't have a uterus. But did you know that every single one of those babies in the womb, there's a father behind that baby. Every single one of them has a father. And uh, most of these women actually will, after having had their abortion in a survey, say that, they would not have gone through the abortion if the father would have supported them, if he would have been there for them. But so many of the men encourage the women to go forward with abortion. They'll pay for the abortion. Sometimes they're not there, or sometimes they're sleeping in the car in the abortion clinic, uh, in the parking lot. So um, I have abortion in my past. In 1999, I just got out of airborne school, and um, you know, I just got a nursing scholarship uh, or a nursing um, acceptance into nursing school and an ROTC scholarship. Um, I thought everything's coming together. You know, everything's working out. My girlfriend is; uh, she just got accepted for her transfer to go to the same ROTC program, different college, but uh, this was up in Baltimore, Maryland, and so everything was coming together. It was working out. And then she told me, I I think I'm pregnant. 
and she had just missed her period. She went, took a pregnancy test. She comes out of that bathroom, and she had a smile on her face. I'm thinking, what is it? And she says, I'm pregnant. And she knew, she knew that pregnancy test meant baby. That meant a child. That meant a life. She knew that. But I thought this was destroying our plans, our dreams, our, you know, we got college and a career ahead of us. We got, you know, what are we going to say to our parents? We're going to disappoint them. And, and uh, I'm throwing her dreams away because she was in ROTC as well. We were both going to be Army officers. And, and uh, this is something we need to just take care of it, pretend it never happened. And so uh, it was right around her birthday, and that's, that's what I gave her for her birthday was I paid for an abortion. I remember her asking, is there, are you sure there's no other way? Are you sure we can't do this? And I said, no, we can't do this. The man of God is called to provide and protect, to, uh, to care for his own household. The Bible says the man who doesn't take care, the one who doesn't take care of his own household is worse than an unbeliever. That means you're cursed. Uh, back then I was a nominal Christian. I would go to church on Sunday, you know, you get dressed up, you, I throw $20 in the plate and I feel good about myself. And then I go back to my life living, however, just like the world, and, um, you know, my relationship with God was like, he's the butler in the sky. When I, if I need something, then I'm going to talk to him. But otherwise, I'm going to go about my business. I didn't have a true relationship with him. And I was blinded by the enemy to think that that was not a life. That it was a clump of tissue. I had no idea that at 17 days, as early as 17 days from conception, God starts that little heart beating. So that by the time that... My wife found out she was pregnant. There was already a little beating heart there, not a, a clump of tissue, not a, you know, a, a clump of cells, but a precious life. A baby that at six weeks has detectable brain waves. We know that because the baby starts moving in the womb. You know, when, and God uses the same word in the Bible for the baby in the womb, brephos, as the child outside of the womb, brephos. Do you know when Mary was, uh, she had been uh, conceived by the, with the Holy Spirit, Jesus was conceived in her womb, she immediately went to her, her uh, cousin Elizabeth, and what, what happened? Do you remember? The baby leapt in the womb. John the Baptist, at six months, leapt in the womb because a baby that had just been conceived Moment of conception, the, the baby in the womb leapt because of the presence of the Savior. He was there already, even in the womb, right after conception. So make no mistake, God says that that is a life, even from the moment of conception. And I wish somebody would have dropped some truth on me. I wish someone would have talked to me, but in Baltimore, I just went straight in pay for the abortion. I was like in a fog, in a, just walking in darkness, really. Spiritual darkness. And I tried to pretend it never happened. 
20 years later, uh, my wife and I, we took our four kids, or two boys, two girls, back to that abortion clinic. We went to Baltimore, Maryland, to that exact abortion clinic, and we confessed to our children what we had done, and that they had a little, or they had an older brother or sister. I, I think God has impressed upon me that it was a son, my firstborn son. We would have named him Miles. Um, so we've kind of designated that name. And as David said, he will not come to me, but I will go to him. So one day I will see Miles and I'll see his face. And I'll ask his forgiveness. But God is good. That was the moment when we started healing, when we confessed when you stepped out of that darkness, so as the pastor said, if you have that in your past, you need healing, and you need to confess that with somebody that you trust, and uh, there's people in this church who are there for you. This is a safe place for you to have that conversation, begin healing. Now, the mission of Love Life is uh, to unify and mobilize the, the church, the local church, to create a culture of love and life that will see an end to abortion and the orphan crisis. We value the child in the womb the same as the, the child out of the womb. And so this is gonna happen through the church. It's not gonna happen through politics. That's downstream from us, the church. The church is what shapes culture and culture shapes politics. So it's gotta start right here. It's gotta start with you. You have to make a decision in your mind and in your heart. I'm going to stand for righteousness. I'm gonna stand for what God's word says. And we're gonna make this church a safe place for those conversations. If you've had abortion in your past or you're even thinking about abortion, please run to the local church. Talk to somebody here before you go to your local abortion clinic up the road in Fayetteville. So the tragic truth is that over in Fayetteville, there's two abortion clinics and over 50 abortions every single week. 2,701 abortions in 19, or I'm sorry, in 2019. And in 2020, there was 2,601 abortions. Exactly 40 less. I think that's significant. I think this is a sign of what God is going to do. There's 40 weeks in the womb. Jesus wandered in the wilderness for 40 days. 40 is significant, and I don't think that's a mistake. Now, there's 17,000 babies killed every single week in America. This is the number one killer of human beings. This is the crown jewel of the enemy who wants to see people dying. More than COVID or um, heart disease or alcohol-related deaths, it just, they all pale in comparison to abortion, the number one killer of human beings, not just in North Carolina, in the U.S. and around the world. That's the reality. That's the truth. One in four women, and we say men too, have abortion in their lifetime, will have abortion in their lifetime. One in four. That means there's people sitting in this congregation, I guarantee you, have abortion in their past, and I, I hope they've healed from it, but if they haven't, it needs to start today, okay? And 54% of the women who have abortions identify as Christian. 
And here in the Bible Belt, it's a lot higher. Most of the women, probably 75, 85% of the women I speak to on the sidewalks, they claim to be a Christian. They say, when I ask, is Jesus the Lord of your life? They say, yes. And then we can bring out God's word. We can offer practical help and resources and say there's a better way. And, And I can tell you, don't go down that path. I've been down that path. And my wife has been down that path. And it's not worth it. Please don't do that to your own flesh and blood and to yourself. There's an emotional, spiritual, and even physical consequence to the decisions we make. You can pick your sin, but you cannot pick the consequence. And I have to live with that. And so I'm trying to, you know, as people are stumbling to the slaughter, I'm trying to snatch them out and say, please don't go that way. Love life is not about shame and condemnation, but healing and restoration. So um, we have an organization called Restored Life that falls under the umbrella of Love Life. And what they do is get you connected to a post-abortive Bible study that is in your area. So um, if you have abortion in your past or you know somebody, like I said, one in four, it's not, this is a a common occurrence in our culture. There's a restored life card back on my table, so just grab one as you go out. Make sure you get a bracelet. Make sure you get a vision packet on your way out. Um, We understand prayer is the key. Things are not going to change unless we pray, the church. If we don't pray, who will? will? Uh, God says that, uh, Jesus said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So when we pray, there's a divine key that gets unlocked, and then there's a release, and there's things that change. And we have access to the throne room of God. We can come boldly to the throne of grace and obtain mercy in our time of need. So don't... Don't think that you, your prayers are not being heard. The creator of the universe hears your prayer and answers your prayer. And we have the opportunity to, to pray specifically about this issue. Now, looking back um, just over the past six years, uh, 2016 is when Love Life started in Charlotte. And since then, we've seen over 3,000 babies saved. And we like to say families saved because... We want to connect those families to a church. We want those, um, we want not only life for that baby, you know, what is it to gain the whole world, you know, and forfeit your life, your soul. So we want them to be connected to a church, a local church, and mentored and discipled and loved on and supported. And we've seen up to a 70% drop in abortions on Wednesdays and Saturdays when there's days of the church in concentrated prayer. Now. In Fayetteville, um, I say to pray on Tuesday. Tuesday morning at 929, that's when both abortion clinics are open. On Wednesdays, they're not open. They're, or they're open, but not doing anything. Tuesday morning at 929, we say Mark 929 says, um, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. So that's significant, as well as the fact that at that specific time, most of these women are in a valley of decision. They've signed in, they've checked into the abortion clinic, and the abortionist has not yet arrived, so they're sitting there waiting. 
And there's people who are Christians who are calling out, trying to offer help. So we want you to pray into that moment. Tuesday morning, set your alarms on your phone, 929. Tuesday morning, pray. And then um, we've seen over 88,000 prayer walkers. Congregations like yourself have come out to the place of darkness and participated in a prayer walk. Hyde Park Baptist has adopted this week, week 40, the last of our weeks of um, prayer walks for the entire year. Um, you, you have committed to praying and going, and so we want you to be part of that. There's over 500 partnering churches with Love Life. We've seen over 28 abortion workers who have left the industry and gone, to, gone on to do something else that would bring glory to God. Um, there's been um, over 3,000 people who have connected beyond the prayer walk. God has put a burden on them to either be a foster parent or to adopt or to be a mentor or uh, for one of these moms who chooses life and needs support. Um, we do mentor training. We also do offer training for someone who wants to be on the front lines calling out and offering those resources to people. So there's four steps. Here, pray, go, and connect. We're doing that today here. You're hearing about the, uh, the, the tragic truth. There's awareness being brought to you now that there is a problem right up the road. If somebody here in this congregation or in your community was thinking about abortion, they would go to Fayetteville most likely. They would just go right up the road. And uh, you know, if, I don't know, if, how many people have been on a mission trip? On a, wow, that's amazing. Praise God. But do you know when you go on a mission trip, it, there's a lot of prep, a lot of planning, a, uh, you need money, uh, you need logistics, resources, you need to get your uh, passport and all that stuff approved. Uh, usually it takes about a year of planning. Right now you can go on a mission trip right up the road and be a part of, of uh, bringing light into the darkness, to be light in the darkness right up the road, in your, affecting your own community. And so we want to hear today, we're going to pray on Tuesday morning, and then also you've got a Tuesday evening prayer, and we're gonna, um, when you commit, you're going to get uh, an email reminder with prayer points to cover, and then you're going to go on Saturday morning to 4565 Yadkin Road, it's right next door to the uh, abortion clinic, uh, the Planned Parenthood. Uh, there's a, a restaurant called Ohana, and the owners of the, the restaurant are Christians. Um, it's a Vietnamese couple, the, um, the husband, he's active duty army, and both of their parents were saved uh, in Hong Kong in a refugee camp. And um, you see, this is something God's been working out for a long time, bringing all these pieces together. So this couple, they, they own that property. They just purchased it. They were leasing it. They purchased it. They own it outright. And they are supportive of the body of Christ coming to the darkest place and conducting a prayer walk on their property. So what an amazing thing that God has done. You have the opportunity to do that this Saturday at 9 a.m. We'd like you to get there a little bit earlier before 9 just to um, check in and get yourself a, a t-shirt. And you're going to join with Mana Church and Berean Baptist and First Church of Fayetteville and, um, and a, a Covenant Love Church. We're all going to come together across denominational lines and say, 
There is a better way. We're going to pray into this moment. We're going to bring the light of the gospel, the light of God's word, and we're going to be that city set on a hill. And we're going to be, bring light to the darkness. It's not about the darkness so much as it is the absence of light. So each one of you has a light, and you need to bring that light to the darkest place in our city. So we're calling you to action, and the Bible says in 1 John 3, 16 and 18, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. We have a code of conduct. We're, we're not there to engage. We're not there to hold signs. We're not there to uh, protest. We're there to just stand in the gap in prayer. Basically, what you have here, you're, you're bringing your worship service to the darkest place. And we're going to watch God do the miracles behind the scenes. God is always working. You know, we see with our human eyes, but there's things happening when we bring the Holy Spirit of God and he inhabits the, the praises of his people. And we're going to be bringing that presence of God right there to that place. And we have spiritual weapons. We have this. Okay, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And so we want you to commit. Uh, there is a uh, vision packet that you could pick up and, and learn a little bit more about um, love life. Make sure you get a bracelet on your way out. And, um, and you can go to lovelife.org. And right there, you'll be able to sign up for week 40. Very easy. Just scroll down to Fayetteville. We're in 15 cities and we're growing. So. We want to change the atmosphere. And this is a historic moment, 2021, November 2021, because 100 years ago, in 1921, Margaret Sanger, she met with um, uh, leaders at the uh, Plaza Hotel and had a meeting, casting the vision for what would become Planned Parenthood. And do you know, what was in her mind was, we need to make all this birth control available in these lower socioeconomic uh, places in our city. We need to place these clinics there so that we can uh, rid ourselves of people of color and lower socioeconomic status. That was her goal. It was, it was in her mind to eliminate certain groups that were not white. That was it, what was in her mind. And it's become Planned Parenthood. And in New York today, there's more babies that are aborted than are born uh, black babies. More black children are aborted than are born. Her vision is coming to fruition in New York City. Now is the time to change. And you can change it right now by going right up the road. You don't have to plan a year out. You don't have to, you know, get a, a, a passport. Just, you can join the body of Christ, come together. And that's kind of what this symbol here is. It says, we love life, but it's these, these hash symbols kind of coming together. That's the body of Christ coming together, different parts, forming up and to, to be the love and light in our city. And so um, please commit. We're on uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. You can follow us there. And, um, you know, we're just excited to see what God is doing. Please be a part of what God is doing. He's working miracles in people's lives. Thank you.
Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.